Well, uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and very much uh, a welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is George Gaskell. I'm a pro-director here, and uh, uh, it is a great pleasure for me to welcome our speakers this evening, Salman Khan and Professor Martin Bean. Uh, I will leave the chair, Rohan Silver, to introduce them. Rohan studied in the government department here at the school, political philosophy and international politics in 2003-2004. He then went on to the, be a fast stream policy analysis analyst uh, at the uh, Treasury before working as an economic advisor to the then shadow chancellor, George Osborne. That was 2006 to 2010. He was a policy advisor for the election and is now working as a senior policy advisor to the Prime Minister. So, Rohan, welcome back to the LSE. It's wonderful to see our alums doing so well, and please introduce our speakers this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you for that uh, kind introduction, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be back. I was uh, thinking on the way over that it was uh, it's appropriate perhaps that we're here to talk about and discuss and hear questions about how you can learn without having to go to university. Um, I got quite a lot of experience with that when I was, when I was here. I didn't really come uh, to as many lectures as I should have done. So uh, had Khan Academy been around back then, that would have been, would have been nice for me. But uh, um, our, our guests, as, as, as we've heard, are Martin Bean and, and Sal Khan. And before opening to them and, and uh, hearing from Sal, I've got a few things I've been told to remind you about. One is to please switch off mobile phones or put them on silent. Also, the hashtag for this event is hash, uh, hashtag LSE education. Um, so please use that if you're, if you're tweeting uh, about this. I um, first heard about Khan Academy, I guess, like a lot of you, about 18 months ago. And, um, you know, really remarkable. Sal reminded me of this today. Khan Academy is only two years old. And the excitement and investment and innovation that's taking place in the online education space you know, has really been sparked by what, what Sal and his team have, have done. And I think the rest of the world is now scrambling to catch up and, and innovate in, in different ways. And we're going to hear from Martin Bean, the head of Open University in the UK, about the brilliant work that they're doing via FutureLearn to support online education. The, the statistics about what Sal has achieved and the Khan Academy has achieved in just two years is, is truly remarkable. Um, six million users per month, the current stat, a billion exercises undertaken, and 230,000 classrooms, um, 30,000 yeah. 30, classrooms, sorry, making use of Khan Academy already. And that's, that's in just two years. So a really remarkable transformation taking place. And what Sal's going to be sharing with us is not just this journey he's been on, where did Khan Academy come from and, and, uh, and how did it get to where it is, but also his vision of where education is going in future. What is the future of the classroom? What are the future of institutions like this? And Martin will respond, and we'll then open out to, 
to all of you for, for comments and, and questions. So I'm, I hope uh, you're all looking forward to this as much as, as I am. And uh, the event will be made available by podcast as well. So without, without further ado from me, please give a very warm welcome to Sal Khan, the founder, CEO of Khan Academy. Thank you. Very, very exciting to be here. Uh, actually, I'm curious, how many of y'all, you are active users of Khan Academy in, in some way? Use, use the site. Very, very, how many of your kids use it in some Okay, so there's, there's some of you. How many of you have no idea why you're here? There's, okay, well, there's, there's a few, but anyway. So um, what, what I'll start showing right now, you know, the, the narrative around Khan Academy is often focused around videos, many of which I started making for family members, and I'll talk a lot more about that. Uh, but what we're going to see is, in our minds, Khan Academy is, the videos are important, but we're much more than, than, than just the videos. But to just get everyone on the same page of what the videos look like, I'll show this little montage of, uh, so, so you get a sense. We could integrate over the surface, and the notation usually is a capital sigma. All of these interactions are just due to the gravity over interstellar, or almost you could call it intergalactic. This animal's fossils are only found in this area of South America, a nice clean band here. Notice this is an aldehyde, and it's an alcohol. This is their 30 million plus the $20 million from the American manufacturer. They create the Committee of Public Safety, which sounds like a very nice committee. This is not Eve. No, Botticelli's portrayed the ancient goddess of love. This is 6 times 6 times 6, or 216. I'm told the humidity makes it feel hotter. Why is this? Excellent question, LeBron. Let's just, like, make it 11. Play with the pendulum and get a feel for how it moves. Function as a bridge rectifier. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. If this does not blow your mind, then you have no emotion. <laughs> I can always gauge the intellect of an audience based on how much they appreciate Euler's identity, and so you guys, you guys did very well. Very good. So, so just to kind of follow up on a few of the stats Rohan had said, just to give a snapshot of where we are now, as he mentioned, about 6 million students a month, uh, uh, 75 million users to date, uh, They've done a billion exercises. Uh, I'll talk in a second about what exercises are for, for those of y'all who aren't familiar with it. But I want to kind of first take a step back and, and how we got here, because frankly, for me personally, this has been a bit of a rocket ship ride. Um, as, as Rohan uh, alluded to in the introduction, I, I've been at this in some way, shape, or form for a long time, but it's really been the last two or three years that we, we were kind of doing this in, in a formal way. And it's, it's surreal for me to even imagine uh, what was going on five, six years ago, that, that some of these numbers are, 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 are a reality. But it all started, uh, we'd have to rewind back to 2004. I was a, a year out of business school. I was working as an analyst at a hedge fund. And I had just gotten married. And uh, I had some family visiting me from New Orleans in Boston right after my wedding. It was my uncle and aunt and their three kids. And while we were just kind of seeing the sights in Boston, um, the, my aunt told me that, her, the, the oldest cousin, Nadia, uh, was actually having trouble in, with, with mathematics. And, and so, uh, you know, when I had a chance to chat with Nadia, I said, well, you know, what, what's, what's going on here? You seem a very, like a very uh, a bright young woman. Uh, we share a certain amount of DNA. Um, <laughs> um, and, and she, told, she said, well, I, 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 I can't get unit conversion, kilometers to miles, ounces to gallons, whatever else. 
And so I told her, I was like, oh, no, I, I'm, I'm 100% convinced you can, you can understand unit conversion. And I thought, she, she, at the time, I sense felt that it was kind of an empty, just pep talk. And I, and I sensed that. And, and so I said, well, look, let's actually act on this. How about you go back to New Orleans? I'm, I'm going to stay here in Boston. Uh, and every day, if you're up for it, there's going to be more work for you. Every day after school for you, after work for me, uh, we'll get on this phone, uh, and, and, and I'll work with you to, to make sure you can master this and then catch up with, with the rest of the class. And uh, she, she agreed. And so they went back to New Orleans. We started working together on a regular basis. And, you know, the first couple of weeks were painful. She had completely psyched herself out. Her brain essentially shut down when it was, you know, engaged in math. But after a while, the, the units finally clicked. Uh, then she started to get other concepts. Then she, frankly, got a little bit ahead of the curve. And, and, and at that point, I, I became what I call a, a tiger cousin. And I, um, I called up her school. And, and I said, you know, I really think Nadia Rahman should uh, retake that placement exam from last year. Uh, and they, they said, who are you? Um, and, and I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm her cousin. Uh, but, but it actually turned out that, you know, they, they did let her retake it. And, uh, not, you know, she, she did pass it with flying colors. And the same girl who, exiting sixth grade, thought she was horrible at math, thought that she couldn't comprehend unit conversion, that in her middle school was being placed into a slower math track, that same girl three years later, as a sophomore in high school, was taking calculus at the local university. And, and I actually, now, she's actually now a college student, and I tell Nadia there's a lot riding on her success, but we can, that's a, <laughs> that's a, um, but, but it's something that we, we see over and over again. And, and so, you know, I, I didn't know, was this a one-off thing? Was this was blind luck? So I started working with her younger brothers. Uh, at this time, actually, the firm I was working for, I, I use the term very loosely, it was literally my boss and his dog and me. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm not actually joking about this. We had to print three business cards out, and the dog was our chief economist. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not but uh, Otto. Uh, and, and we, uh, he was very gloomy around 2008. <laughs> but uh, we, we my, my boss's wife got, a, got a, a job as a professor at Stanford, so we moved out to Northern California. I had also started writing this little quiz software for my cousin, so I can give them practice problems, and for me as a tutor to get feedback on how they were doing. And, uh, and, and, and people realize, this was the first Khan Academy. That's when I got the domain name and I set up the website. Videos weren't part of the picture at all. But you fast forward now, I'm living out in, in Northern California, and it was uh, fall of 2006. So it's about two years after I started first tutoring my cousins. A couple of things has ha had happened. Uh, the first uh, word had gotten around in the family that free tutoring was happening. <laughs> and so I, I found myself every day after work trying to coordinate and work with about 10 or 15 cousins. And... Uh, and I was having them do the exercises, and all my friends knew that I had this crazy project that I was doing every day after work. And so it was at dinner at a friend's house one night, and uh, I was showing them the software that I had written, and they all knew that I was tutoring all these cousins. And I was saying, you know, the only problem is I'm, I'm having trouble scaling. I'm having trouble doing what, what I was able to do with Nadia now with 10, 15 kids. And, and it was my, my friend, I should give him credit, his name is Zulfikar, Zulfikar Ramzan, who said, um, well, you know, why don't you, to help yourself scale up, make some video tutorials and, and put them up on, on YouTube? And, and I said, no, 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 that's, that's, a, that's a silly idea. YouTube is for cats playing piano. <laughs> it is not for serious mathematics. Uh, but I, I, I literally went home that weekend. I, I got over the idea that it, it wasn't my idea. And I uh, decided to, to, to give it a shot. And... Um, Sometimes hard for an MBA to do that, uh, and and uh, you know, and I at those first, I probably I was just I turned out about 10, 15 videos on some pre-algebra concepts, on some algebra concepts, 
And uh, after a couple of weeks, I was telling my cousins, hey, you know, why don't you take a look at these? They might be good review. If you have questions, we can use our tutorial time for that. And after a few months of that, I asked my cousins. I was like, well, you know, what, what do you think? And uh, they gave the somewhat positive but somewhat backhanded feedback that they prefer me on YouTube than in person. <laughs> and uh, I haven't fully clarified how broad of a statement that is. Uh, but at first, it was surprising because they're saying that, you know, it, this, not only was it approximating what I was doing, but on some level, they actually appreciated having it in, in this on-demand environment, this, this automated cousin, so to speak. But when you really think about it from their point of view, and, and we've all been in the, 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 the seat of a learner trying to get your head around a new concept that might be confusing, you realize that the first time you're learning something, the last thing you need is someone kind of looking over your shoulder and saying, do you get it yet? Or if you're embarrassed, that, or if you're, say you're in ninth grade learning algebra, but you're a little foggy on exponents or negative numbers or decimals, you're, you don't want to raise your, your hand, or you're even embarrassed to ask your cousin or a tutor, like, I'm actually a little foggy on my fifth or sixth grade math. But this is, there's no judgment. It's going to be on demand whenever you need it, as you need it. And so I, I took that as positive feedback, kept making more and more and more videos, algebra, then geometry, then trigonometry, then physics, and kept adding more and more. And, and, and you know, at the time, really just thinking, well, this will be a cool thing for my family. At the time, I didn't have kids. Now, now I do. And I said, well, one day, maybe my kids could watch this video. Or maybe their, my, their kids could watch it. it was, I actually viewed it as more of kind of this little thing for the family. Uh, but it, it soon became clear that, that people who are not my cousins started watching. And, uh, you know, at, at, at first, the comments on YouTube would be like, uh, thanks. Uh, this really helped. Uh, I got an A on my test. And, and even that was pretty exciting. Uh, I don't know how much time you all have spent on YouTube. Uh, but the, the, the commentary there isn't always quite positive. <laughs> and so I, I took that as, as a good sign. Um, and, and then as a, you know, the traffic kept growing and growing, and, and, I, and the comments started to get kind of more intense. Uh, this is the reason why I didn't fail. This is the reason I didn't drop out of high school. This is, uh, because of this, I'm inspired to go major in physics or in engineering. I got letters from people who are retiring from the military who said, this is the only reason why I've been able to reconnect with mathematics so I can go back to college. You know, in those early days, and we've gotten several letters to this effect now, uh, but I remember one in particular where I brought my wife over to read it, and we, we couldn't believe it. There's this, this, a woman had written us a letter that uh, both, two of her, of her children had learning disabilities. It was the only thing that was connecting with, with her children, and uh, that she said her, her entire family prays for my entire family every night. And, and I mean, just, just for a little context, I, mean, I was an analyst at a hedge fund. I, I, I wasn't... People... There, there was a little prayer, but it was a different verb. <laughs> Some people had asked me earlier about generating alpha, but yeah, that was a, a separate question. Um, so it was, you know, this hugely rewarding thing, and I, you know, it was uh, all of these people were using it. And so you fast forward to 2009, fall of 2009, and I frankly had trouble focusing on my day job. I, I all my my mental cycles were on this, and. Uh, I had entertained the notion a couple of months before, but, you know, we look at our bills. Uh, my son had just been born in, in, in February of 2009, so we, we had more bills. And, uh, but I, I think my wife also recognized that, look, this is, this is where Sal's brain is focused on. We had a little bit of savings, and so we sat down and, you know, kind of convinced ourselves that, one, I, I could afford to focus on this for maybe a year, um, and that, you know, the, the social return on investment, this is a not-for-profit that, that we're setting this up as, but the social return on investment is kind of off the charts, however you want to quantify it, however you want to value a video viewer, a student learning algebra, whatever it might be. And so I, I, I quit my job uh, to focus full-time on, on the not-for-profit Khan Academy. And I think a lot of, you know, this is an entrepreneurial story. It's a not-for-profit entrepreneurial story. But I think a lot of entrepreneurial stories, you start off actually 
fairly naive, almost necessarily naive, and necessarily delusional. And you, uh, you tell yourself, well, this is, look, look at all the people using it, look at the letters we're getting. I literally had a notebook of letters that I used to, when I used to meet foundations that I would show them. I was like, look at these letters I'm getting. And, and they, a lot of them showed interest, and I was always hopeful that something would happen. But frankly, it was a new thing. It hadn't really been validated by kind of official validators yet. And, and so I, I kind of kept founding myself getting rejected. And you fast forward about nine months, um, I was getting five, twenty dollars, thirty dollars through the PayPal account, and that and that was helping. Uh, but but the, and, but I was trying to get worried. I I, I literally, you know, I, I need to update my resume. I might have to go back to what what I was doing before. And right when that was happening, I a, a, a donation came in for for ten thousand dollars. So I look at this, and it actually it had the name of the person who gave the donation. It had her address. She, she was local. Her name was Ann Doer. So I, I and had her email address. So I email her, and I said, well, dear Ann. Uh, uh, thank you so much for your generous donation. This is the largest donation that Khan Academy has ever received. If we were a physical, bil- a physical school, you would now have a building named after you. <laughs> and um, Anne immediately emailed back and said, oh, well, you know, I'm a big fan of the site. My kids use it. I use it a lot to understand economics and other things. Um, I'm local. I'd love to meet. And so we literally, I think it was the next week, we met at an Indian buffet restaurant in downtown Palo Alto, and Anne um, asked me, she's like, well, you know, so what, what's, what's, your, what's, what's your mission here? What are you trying to do? And I said, well, you know, when you set up a not-for-profit, at least in the U.S., the IRS, there's a form, and they have a thing called mission statement, and you're blank. And I remember when I was filling that out, literally while I was sitting in my closet, and I was like, oh, I don't know, they give you about a line and a half. So I said, a free world-class education for anyone anywhere. And so Anne says, well, that's ambitious. Uh, how, how do you plan to do that? Uh, and I said, well, I- I'm enjoying making these videos. I, you know, I had my notebook of the testimonials that I walked around with. Um, I was showing her the, the traffic on the site. You know, I-, I think at that point there was about 50,000 people were using the site on a regular basis. Uh, and I said, I want to keep doing this, but I, I want to overlay it with interactive platform, with exercises, with feedback. I showed her the screenshots of some of the stuff that I had built for my cousins. And, and actually, even that was being used by a good number of people. I said we could connect students. We can really start to push the envelope of what's possible virtually. Maybe one day it could be used in schools or summer camps in some way. We could internationalize it one day. And, and Anne actually said, well, you know, as, as audacious as kind of what you just, your mission statement is, it, it, you're, you're kind of doing it. It doesn't seem that crazy. Uh, but, but how are you supporting yourself? And, and in as proud of a way as possible, I, I, I said, I'm not. <laughs> And, and so uh, Anne kind of nods and, and, and we, you know, and, and we, we part ways and uh, I, I literally, you know, I get back in my car, Anne literally gets on her bicycle and uh, I'm, about 15 minutes later I'm coming into our driveway into our, at our house and I get a text message from Anne and it literally was like, it, it was one text message and it said, you need to be supporting yourself, I've just wired you $100,000. <laughs> so it was a good day. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, I now take text messages from Anne very seriously, so just in case I, you see me walking. Um, and, 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 you know, that was just, I mean, I, I would say the first, although there was kind of all these, even these letters that we were getting from students was kind of a crazy thing too, but this was, it, the, the crazy events just started to cascade and cascade from that. You fast forward two months, uh, I was running a, a, a little summer camp with a buddy in, in, uh, in, in Northern California as well, and it was really around this idea that, you know, I was kind of this virtual tutor guy, this virtual teacher, whatever you wanted to call me, 
Uh, but I was always intrigued, okay, if you can get your lecture someplace else, what can you do with a physical environment? And for me, the physical environment had a lot of potential. So I, I had this summer camp for middle school kids where we, um, and I was running different simulations and games and we were building robots and whatever else. And we were doing one simulation uh, where, uh, you know, six kids were playing a game of risk. And uh, we had the other 20 kids trading securities based on the outcome of the game of risk. <laughs> it's a very good game. You have to be a Two, there was a, 11-year-old who invented naked shorting on his own. And I told him I could in- introduce him to some people who could uh, provide a... Uh, and and, and, and uh, it's, it's shorting a security that you don't... It's selling a security that you have not borrowed, that does not exist. That just, it's not something else, for those of you all who don't. Um, and, and, uh, and while that kind of crazy trading floor of middle school students was, was, was happening, I got another series of text messages from Ann, which I now take very seriously. And uh, they read, it was, it was actually quite cryptic to read, but they, they read along the lines of, um, at the Aspen Ideas Festival right now, uh, in the main pavilion, uh, Bill Gates on stage, last five minutes talking about Khan Academy. And I didn't know what to make of this. So I literally, I, I boot the nearest seventh grader off of a computer, <laughs> and I, I literally start Googling this, seeing if someone's tweeting it. I mean, I just wanted some type of validation, some type of verification that this was actually occurring. And it wasn't long before I found some people were writing about it. Um, it was later that afternoon, I found actually a, a podcast of, of the event. Then later that evening, there was a video of the event. So this thing had occurred. Bill Gates was on stage with Walter Isaacson, the head of the Aspen Institute, and you know, just randomly started talking about, yeah, I use this site called the Khan Academy. I use it with my kids. I use it for myself, uh, which actually made me a little nervous. <laughs> I, those videos were for Nadia, not, not Bill Gates. Um, and, 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 you know, it, at, at that point, it kind of was kind of an awkward situation. I, I said, you know, wh- what do I do next? I mean, do I call him up? I suspect he's not listed. And um, they, they frankly left me in that awkward situation for the next two weeks. And two weeks later, I was literally in, in, in my little walk-in closet, which was where I, did, where I recorded the videos. And uh, I got a call from Seattle. Oh, this is intriguing, and so I answer, you know, hello, and, and it, this is Larry Cohen, I'm, I'm Bill Gates' chief of staff, so clearly they were able to get my phone number, <laughs> and um, you, 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 you might have heard that Bill Gates is a fan, uh, yes, I heard that, uh, if, if you're free uh, in the next few weeks, uh, we'd love to fly you up and, and, and find out how we might be able to support what you're doing, and, and I was looking at my, my calendar for the month at the moment, Completely blank. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, sure, you know, I've, I've got to cut my nails on Wednesday, but other than that, I think I could, I could go and meet Bill Gates. Um, and so we had that meeting, and frankly, I, I kind of did the same, I told the same thing to, to Bill that I t- told to Ann. Uh, actually, some folks from Google had also kind of called me in and said, you know, what would you do with more resources? And I articulated the same thing, not quite sure of where, where they were going. Apparently, a lot of folks at Google were also already using Khan Academy themselves and with their kids. And so by fall of 2010, and you know, to Rohan's point of the two years, that was kind of the, 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 the real birth of us as a real organization beyond just me. Uh, we had our first significant funding from the Gates Foundation and, and from Google. And obviously since then we've had many other folks who support us in, in, in big and small ways. And uh, we, we were up and running. And what we really started to focus on, obviously I just kept making videos and, and things like that, but we also wanted to continue doing the exercise platform that I'd started doing with, with my cousin. So he started getting some really great engineers and designers to, to work on this. 
And this right over here, just to kind of give a framework of how we view things, this is what we call our knowledge map. And each concept here is a concept in mathematics. And you guys have already seen the, the, that montage of videos. The videos go well, well beyond mathematics, well beyond even just the sciences. It goes into the humanities and whatever else. But, but right now, our interactive platform is, is mathematics. And those top nodes that you saw, those were basic arithmetic, uh, basic, uh, basic addition, basic subtraction. And as you go further and further down this tree, and these lines are the dependencies, you start getting into more advanced arithmetic, pre-algebra, algebra, trigonometry, a little bit of calculus. And our goal is to really expand as far as we can go. Go well into uh, university-level math, into statistics, who knows what else, even the sciences. And, and the model is, is, as a student shows proficiency in a more basic concept, it'll then forward them to the next concept. And if they show proficiency or mastery in that, then it forwards them to the next one. And it's, to some degree, a completely common-sense way to, to kind of think about things. It's the way, it's the way that you would, you would uh, uh, play a video game. You would beat level one boss, and then you move to level two, beat level two. It's the way you would learn a martial art. You, you take the white belt exam or the, the test, and then you become a yellow belt. It's the way you would learn a musical instrument. Uh, but what I point out is it's, it's, it's not the way that a, a traditional school model works. In a traditional school model, what we do is we, we batch students together, usually by age, we push them together at a set pace, usually mandated by the district or the state somehow. And we have lecture homework, lecture homework, lecture homework. And then every couple of weeks, we give an assessment. And let's say that assessment is on basic exponents. And on that assessment, you might get an A, you might get a B, you might get a C. And even though that assessment identified that you were missing some concepts, and even the A student might have been, they might have gotten a question wrong and got an A minus, even though it identified those weaknesses in basic exponents, the whole class then moves on to negative exponents or moves on to logarithms. And, and you know, the analogy that you could make is imagine doing the same process if you were building a multi-story house. Uh, you, you, you bring the contractors in and you say, well, you know, the, the curriculum says that we've got to build a foundation this next three weeks in January. So the contractor says, well, I'll do what I can. The contractor does what they can. Maybe it rains a little bit. Maybe some of their supplies don't show up. And uh, then the, you bring the inspector in after three weeks. And the inspector takes a look at it and says, well, the concrete's still wet right over there. That part isn't quite up to code. I would give it an 85%. And you say, great, that's a C. Let's build the first floor. <laughs> and, so, and, we, and, and we have to. And so we build the first floor, once again, two weeks. And then uh, you know, maybe the contractor falls sick, but they do what they can. Inspector shows up. 80%, great. Second floor, third floor, fourth floor. And then all of a sudden, when you're building the fourth floor, the whole thing collapses. And our reaction with, and the analogy is if when, when the student all of a sudden is in algebra class, they've been having these gaps their whole life, they're in calculus class, and all of a sudden they don't understand anything, it's the exact same process. And, and, our, and our instinct in the home building analogy is to either blame the contractor or say that we didn't have enough inspection, or maybe the inspections weren't rigorous enough or they weren't good enough, and, and that might be part of it. I'm not saying that those necessarily aren't part, parts of the problem or solution. But the, the real big problem is actually the process is broken. You're, I, you, are, you are identifying gaps and then completely ignoring the gaps. You're identifying gaps in a student. You don't understand basic exponents. We give you an A, B, or C. That A, B, or C is much more viewed from a point of view of a value judgment on your intelligence than it is of, well, you've got a C. You need to keep improving it. Instead, we say, oh, yeah, you're pretty mediocre. You've got a C at basic exponents. Now let's try to do negative exponents. Let's try to do logarithms, pretty much ensuring that you're just going to flail and get, get frustrated. And so what we say is instead of holding fixed when you learn something and how long you have to learn it, like our, our current model, 
or, or the current traditional model, and the variable is how well you learn it, pretty much ensuring that you have these gaps accumulating your entire career, and at some point you're going to hit a wall and the building is going to collapse, so to speak. Uh, do it the other way around. What should be variable is how long you have to learn something, when you learn it, essentially learn at your own time, your own pace. And what's fixed is that you learn it at a high level of mastery. So essentially master concepts and, then, and, and only then move on. Just to give an idea of what these exercises look like, this is one for calculus. I like to show this one because it's kind of like Montessori for derivatives. You, you change the slope of the tangent line at any point and you essentially get an intu intuition for what a derivative is. Uh, I like to show this because it shows you can do stuff in this form factor that you can't do even with a traditional textbook or a traditional chalkboard or whiteboard. Uh, and on top of this, behind the scenes, we're keeping track of everything. And we can run experiments. We can say, hey, if we change the wording, how does that change engagement? If we change the colors, does that change people's comprehension? Does it change their attention? Uh, are people finding it useful? And, and these are things that traditional education content could have never done. They, they would just publish something. They don't know who's reading what. They don't know what's working, what's better. They published version two. They didn't know if it's actually empirically better than version one. But now we can start to do that analytically with, 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 on, on the web. When, when all of this happened around uh, fall of 2010, uh, you know, my assumption was, hey, you know, this is a supplemental thing. Uh, all the letters we got were from, you know, students just using it at their own time. I had used it a little bit at the summer camp that, that I was running with a friend. Uh, there were some other local summer camps that were using it, a few after-school programs. But I didn't really imagine it being used as part of a, a, a formal education system. And, and a lot of the reasons, even though I, 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 we kind of had ideas of how it could be used, is I had read kind of the same news reports that everyone else does. It's a lot of inertia, et cetera, et cetera. But a local school district, Los Altos, uh, reached out and said, well, we're curious about some of what you're doing. What would you do if you could do anything with a fifth grade math classroom? And so we said, well, we would let every student learn at their own pace. We think they can get the lecture part, if you think lecture is important, at their offline or when they're, when they're at home, not, not during class time. And then class time could be freed for peer-to-peer uh, -peer instruction, it could be free, freed for project-based learning, it could be freed for having conversations about things, it could be freed for the teachers having data on who's stuck on things and doing very focused interventions. And, uh, you know, the same ideas, master concepts and then move on. And uh, somewhat surprisingly, they, they agreed and they, they started, they wanted to do a pilot. So right from the get-go, we started this pilot in Los Altos with two fifth grade and two seventh grade math classes. And a lot of what I show you is actually kind of designed along with the teachers and this is one of the reports they get. And all of this stuff is actually available on Khan Academy. You can sign up yourself as a coach of your cousin or your children, and you can have these exact same resources. And essentially, each row here is a, is a student. We blank this off for privacy. It's, it's essentially like a spreadsheet. Each column right over there is, is one of those concepts that you saw on that, that knowledge map. And the idea here, and we've changed it a little bit since, since, making, since this screenshot, but blue means that this student is working on units, that concept. Green means that this student is proficient at dividing fractions, that module. Red means that this student is having trouble with level three exponents. And so the model that we've seen emerge, and it's been different in every classroom, it's really a lot of us learning from how, how teachers are using it, has been, well, if a teacher sees that, hey, there's this one student who's having difficulty, either he or she could go sit down next to those student, that student and do a one-on-one -on -one intervention and let the other students continue to work at their own time and pace, or even better, they could say, hey, look, there's these other two students who seem to have mastered it. Why don't I get one of them or maybe both of them to be the first line of attack and tutor their peer? And then you get two benefits. One, you get, you get kind of scaling up the teacher. This person's going to get personalized attention now. 
there's a, there's, there's a distinct possibility that these people might be able to explain it in a way that the teacher, her, him or herself, might have not because they might have learned it recently. And you're going to get the benefit that, and, and I think we, most of us recognize the best way to learn something. These people, they might be proficient, but to really master a concept is to, is to really explain it and to be able to teach someone else. And so it's actually going to reinforce, reinforce the concept for those students. This is another uh, dashboard that the teachers get, and you know, there's, there's a ton of these. I like to show this one because it, it tells a very similar narrative to what I saw with Nadia back in, in 2004. Uh, the horizontal axis right over here is days working on the site. So it's just, just the passage of time. This vertical axis right over here is just a raw count of how many of those circles, those, those nodes on that original slide you saw that a student has shown proficiency in. And each of these lines are a student in the classroom. And what you see in this classroom, and you see in, frankly, all the classrooms, any classroom, we saw this in the same classrooms that where we grew up, is, yeah, right when you start, there's a group of kids who race ahead. These are the kids who are getting the modules really, really, really fast. You tend to call those the honor students. These are the students in the middle. They're, they're progressing, but a little bit slower. And then there's a, a group of kids that are a little bit, they're, they're frankly, really slow to start. And, and, and usually around, at least in the U.S., and I, think, I believe even here as well, around middle school, around 12, 13 years old, you tend to separate these kids. You tend to say, okay, these are the kids who are going to become doctors and lawyers and engineers. These kids will probably go to college. These kids, probably college or, or white-collar professions aren't, aren't, aren't quite appropriate for them. But what we're seeing is if you let all the kids work at their own pace, yes, that happens. These kids start racing ahead. These kids are further behind. But if you let them essentially fill in all these gaps and knowledge that they've been accruing their, their entire life, that same student that you thought was a little bit below average by day 10, by day 60 is the second best student in the class. And this is only a period of two months. Imagine what happens over two years or over an entire academic career. And we're seeing this dynamic where it's really hard to predict who's going to be the best student in the class. It'll often be someone who was the worst student in the class, maybe two or three months ago. We're seeing that in public schools, in private schools, in charter schools, in rich neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods. It's a dynamic we see over and over and over again. This right here is just some data, and I'm, in the q and I'm, I'm happy to go into it in more detail. Uh, of, of, you know, we, we are working with the school districts to measure the, the impact. And this is one of, you know, some, some of the more interesting things that we've seen. This is a charter school in Oakland, California, underserved neighborhood. A lot of these kids several years behind grade level. And uh, coming in, red is the year where they're trying to do a little bit more of a self-paced model. They're not going, frankly, in the full direction we would want. But they're allowing the students to remediate at their own time, at their own pace, blended with some traditional instruction. Blue is the previous kind of pure traditional cohort, the previous year, red is the, the year that they started trying it out. I see on the summer pretest, they were completely identical. And what the teacher saw as they went through the year, the red definitely outperformed, but that outperformance got more and more dramatic as the year progressed, which kind of reinforces this idea that for the other students, these, these skills were just, these gaps were just accumulating and accumulating. But what was even neater, I mean, it's, it's great that the test scores improved, but what was even neater is what the, the teacher talked about, the, the mindset change of the students. A lot of these students, when they came into the class, were just, I don't get math. Uh, you know, they would try to do a problem for two seconds. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. What do I do next, professor? It was kind of a very passive mentality towards their learning. While as soon as they were allowed to, to some degree, set their own goals, decide what they want to do next, and the teacher is not someone to force information into them, but the teacher is a, re is a resource to help them reach their goals, it changed the student's mentality. They took ownership of their learning. When these same kids that a few months ago said, oh, no, no, I'm not, uh, said, oh, I don't know how to do math. After two seconds of not being able to do a problem, two months later, they were the same kids who were saying, don't tell me the answer. I'm going to be able to figure this out. They started to persevere. And you know, the teacher said this, and we recognize it more and more, even more valuable than you know, learning systems of equations or absolute value or whatever it might be, 
even more valuable than that is that meta skill of just taking ownership of your learning and, 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 and frankly, persevering. The, you know, we're, as, as Rohan introduced, we're being used in about 30,000 classrooms. There's about half a million kids in those 30,000 classrooms. But still, the bulk of our usership is, you know, the other 90% is, is just random people all over the planet uh, using it for whatever reason. And we get all sorts of letters all the time. And, and this next video I'm going to show you, it's, it's, it's been one of the most powerful ones. And it just shows you, frankly, how much potential there is in the world uh, if we just allow people to, to tap into it. My name is Mark Halberstadt. Growing up, I was really always a C student. I pretty much thought that the only thing I was good enough to do in college was major in music. But I, I sort of almost felt that it was more I was getting it because I was terrible at everything else. Really what I wanted to do was electrical engineering. And the last thing that I remember completely not getting was trig identities. So I went to YouTube and I did a search for trig identities and Khan Academy was the first thing that popped up. Watched a bunch of videos in the trig playlist to kind of get caught up to speed. I watched all the videos in the calculus playlist. I watched all the videos in the physics playlist. Watched a, a lot of videos on arithmetic. I took a leap and I decided to go back to school and went to uh, Temple University, majored in electrical engineering, getting a second bachelor's. And keep in mind, I, I was really a straight C student growing up. And I just finished this year, first year back in college, I got a 4.0 GPA for the entire year. I got perfect scores on both of my calc final exams and also on my chemistry final exam. I ended uh, calculus, chemistry, both calculus classes, Calc 1, 2, and chemistry with an average higher than 100%. There are some Khan Academy videos that I probably listen to the same concept over 20 or 30 times. And there is no tutor in the world I could have paid to have sat next to me and repeated the same thing over 20 or 30 times without at least them getting a little bit judgmental or at least them get, thinking like, oh, well, this guy really is never going to get this concept and he should just give up. Where the understanding really happened was watching those videos and, and also working through the Khan Academy software and everything. The impact for me in my life, I, I really see it growing exponentially over the next 20 or 30 years. So uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And, and Mark is... And he's now a junior and still has a 4.0. So it's something is good, <laughs> something's good happening o over there. This, you know, this is something that I think, well, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, a few minutes ago, but I, I think people are starting to realize, including us, that, you know, what started off as a video platform or a video plus exercise platform, a way to get exercises, at the end of the day, its real power might be as an analytics platform or as a research platform. And we've, at, you know, at any given moment, right now, as we speak, we're running about 20 experiments on Khan Academy. You know, in, in web speak, they call it A-B testing. If you have a lot of users, if you have a couple of million people hitting the site every day, you have, you know, 95% get the standard experience, but 5% you tweak something. You, you change the color, you change uh, the interface, you change which video is suggested, and you see how that affects the metrics you care about. How does that affect engagement? How does that affect time on the site? How does that affect retention of information later on? And these are all the things that we've, we've started to measure. And we've started to come up with really interesting things. Some of it is validating some of the, the, the research that's been out in the field but has, 
historically been a little controversial because it was done on small data sets. It was done on a very particular use case. But now we're able to do it on massive data sets, on 40,000 students, on 100,000 students. And we get this data in a, in a matter of days. Now we don't have to wait a, a full year for it. And this, this, this first experiment, um, I, how many of you are familiar with Carol Dweck's growth mindset type of work? A little bit? A few, okay, a few folks here. So it's actually an interesting thing, even a, from a parent point of view. It's this idea that when, when we see a, a, a student or a child do something good, our, our instinct is to say, oh, wow, you're really smart. That's a really great job. You're so good at that. I'm so impressed how smart you are. And, and it turns out that it's far better, instead of saying, I'm so impressed by how smart you are, it's far better to say, I'm so how, impressed by how much effort you put into this. I'm so impressed by how much you persevered. Because the theory is, if, and it's been validated by, by data that Carol Dweck published years ago, is when you, when you tell someone how smart they are, they like it, it reinforces it, but then when they encounter a task where they're not good at it, they disengage for fear of not looking smart. While if their positive reinforcement is around their work ethic or their perseverance, they're like, oh, I'm going to show. I'm good at persevering. I'm going to persevere in this as well. And so we've done some experiments to kind of see if, that, if that's true. Uh, one experiment was we started randomly putting up quotes for a small percentage of our user base. While they're doing exercises, we put little motivational quotes at, at the top of the videos and, uh, or at the top of the exercises. And some of them were kind of just random or, hey, you're doing a great job, keep it up. Some of them were just random quotes. And then some of them were these kind of growth mindset quotes. And there were stuff like, your brain is like a muscle. The more you flex it, the more powerful it gets, kind of reinforcing that idea. And we saw... Just by randomly putting quotes like that up, you had 5% increase in the number of problems done by the students. And the 5%, I mean, this is just one experiment. You keep, you keep adding more and more of these experiments. They, they, add, up, they add up, frankly, to, to a lot. Even 5% is fairly dramatic. We actually did another one along the same vein where we, 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 we sent a letter out to the, the teachers using Khan Academy. We sent an email out to them. And in one of the questions, we phrased it with kind of a growth-centered mindset. Oh, you know, teacher, by the way, there's a study that shows this. And we just wrote a sentence about it. And question number five to an email to 30,000 teachers, some, many of which probably didn't even read the email. So half of them got that version. Half of them got just another problem number five or question number five in the survey. And of the teachers who happened to get the email, who were sent the email, who knows if they even read it, of those teachers, their students did 5% more work the next week. And so we can start to do these massive experiments on, on, on data sets that, that people haven't seen before. The, the second experiment right over here is uh, around just even the phrasing of explanations. Uh, you know, textbooks have been doing this for, frankly, hundreds of years, trying to explain how to do a math problem. And some of our explanations are, frankly, similar to a textbook. If you didn't know how to do this problem, it'll give you, a kind of a, it'll give you the math problem, and then it'll give you some pros that a textbook would traditionally give to. You know, how do you deal with a negative number? So we tested kind of the, 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 the steps with the pros, kind of the textbook version, we compared that to just giving the steps, just the, the, the steps. And surprisingly, when you gave the, the, the pros, it was a reduction in 6% in retention. So that student, a, a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, their probability of being able to do that type of problem. And we, it was actually surprising to us because we thought that the pros would have helped. But you know, now our, our current theory is, is that when you, do, when you see this as an explanation, it forces your brain to try to figure out what happened from here to here instead of kind of being spoon-fed. And when your brain figures out what's happening from here to here, you're more likely to retain the concept. We don't know for sure, but empirically, for at least this type of problem, it, it seems to be the case. And this is something that we could have never done traditionally with, with, with textbooks or even traditional lectures. You know, it's probably in the back of some of y'all's mind. Everything I've talked about so far has been essentially our world, the developed world. 
Uh, but the implications for the developing world could be at least as big, if not bigger. And all of these are, are pictures of Khan Academy being used in random places around the world. And this is all work, frankly, done by other groups. They've been taking other NGOs, for the most part, have been taking Khan Academy software tools, sometimes offline, sometimes online, sometimes setting up computer labs, and they've been taking it to the far reaches of the globe. And all of these are exciting stories, but the one on the top right is probably the most exciting. I've, uh, I, I, I've given talks like these you know, two years ago, and I used to say, you know, in one day, this might be used in Mongolia. <laughs> Just thinking of the furthest place on the planet I could think of. And uh, about a, a year and a half ago, I got an email from, from Mongolia. And, and it was actually from, from that young woman right up there named Zaya. And, and she sent an email kind of thanking, and, and, and she sent a link to a YouTube video. I click on it. It was a very similar to Mark Halberstadt's video. You know, thank you. This is really helping. And I got excited. I mean, uh, 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 just that she was using it. She found it useful. But I assume, no, she must be a middle-class girl, upper middle class. She has access to computers. She has access to broadband. But then I read the email more carefully, and it turns out that there was a group from Cisco Systems that used their vacation time to go to Mongolia to set up computer labs and orphanages. And so that's actually pictures of, of that, the, the orphan girls in Mongolia using Khan Academy. Zaya was one of the orphan girls. And that by itself is kind of crazy and almost out of a sci-fi book. What's even crazier is that Zaya, who's now a 17-year-old, 17, 17 uh, she is our number one producer of content in the Mongolian language. She has produced uh, over 100 videos in algebra on Mongolian, and they're being used uh, throughout, throughout, throughout the country. And so just to give a sense of, of what's happening on the internationalization side, and this is really a core focus for our organization over the next year, uh, where we want to translate the videos, redo the videos oftentimes, it's the right-to-left language or there's different cultural references. Uh, we're going to internationalize the whole site. Spanish is going to be the first language, followed by Portuguese, followed by all of the world's major languages. Uh, this next video is a montage of what those videos look like. And they're actually available already. If you go to the bottom of the site, you can pick languages to watch videos in different languages. And it also has a little bit of that original video that, that Zaya had, had first sent. Sí, decimos que bueno, esta fue la primera cara y esta fue la segunda cara. Ye jo hai jo observer yahan kahin baitha hoga to usko ye image jo hai. Nega jiao, jo shi zheng xuan shu zhi dui yong de jiao. Mo mojim obe storene razdelit na b plus a. Egalement sur la dernière leçon, shan kuda be shela. Az le maase, ze ra ka shinui be erah wai. Vasangri, zaro maige be din be nun wai chizi. Akon Mas é claro que ele fez muitas e muitas e muitas outras coisas importantes. I watch that when I get lazy. She's. Uh... I have told her that she has a college recommendation coming, so I think she'll hopefully do just fine. So, you know, the one thing I point out, and I, I point out to, well, one, I point out that it's not me anymore. We're a team. We actually just crossed our 40th employee. Uh, but, you know, it, it feels like we're at a special time. I mean, I tell, I tell our, our team this every day. It's not even a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I feel it's a, it's a once-in-a-millennium opportunity where we can literally, hopefully, affect, you know, the Zayas of the world at a scale that, that maybe people hadn't seen before. And just to get a kind of a sense of the scale, you know, our, our team over the last year averaged 34 employees, and we were able to reach 50 million students. And it's actually a fun unit conversion problem. If, if, if this is about a centimeter high, uh, if this was drawn to scale, this would actually be 20 kilometers high. So the, the, the original tagline was just the necessities. But, uh, <laughs> 
I think he's got a bell or a whistle on or some kind, too. So uh, we could... Uh, but, but, you know, the, the, the general idea here is, um, you know, this, this thing called we call education, uh, which, you know, has always been the key determinant between the haves and the have-nots um, and has always been a scarce and expensive thing, and, and even today, to a large degree, is a scarce and expensive thing, um, maybe doesn't have to be that way for the foreseeable future. Uh, over the next 5, 10, 15 years, uh, you know, we're already obviously seeing it, the beginnings of it, uh, we imagine that uh, it, it will be like a human right. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be like clean drinking water or electricity, something that you just can't imagine. There are people on the planet who don't have that. Uh, we can imagine a world where we get to be a true meritocracy, where you know, right now there's some girl in the slums of Calcutta who might have the potential to find for the cure of cancer, but right now she's being sold into prostitution, or who knows what it might be. And we can tap into that potential. You can imagine if you can increase by a factor of... 10, the number of people in the world who understand biology, who understand science, or understand the humanities, uh, what, what does that do? What does that do for politics? What does that do for science? Is that a, how can it accelerate just, just our overall advancement? And so it's, for me, kind of, it's, it feels like we're living in a science fiction book. Um, and, and what's really exciting is traditionally philanthropy has been around, well, what do the middle class have? What do the rich have? Well, that's expensive. The poor have nothing. Maybe we can give them a cheap approximation of, of what the middle class have. But we're now in a reality where you know, the, the incremental cost of delivering this is, is, is close to zero. Uh, we, can, we can give Zayas of the world, not, not a, a cheap approximation of what we have. Uh, we can give her the exact same tools that Bill Gates' kids are using. And so uh, that, that idea makes, makes me very hopeful for the world. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sal. That was um, just the most inspiring talk, the most inspiring story. I think all of us who are passionate about what technology can do, about how opening up access to information around the world can help improve lives, I think it was a wonderful, um, you know, wonderfully um, moving and, uh, and, and inspiring, inspiring story. Um, the UK has has been a, uh, a, a leader in. Distance learning for uh, well since since the Open University in 1969, and a lot of my experience of Open University, probably like like some of you, is it was you know getting staggering home at 3 a.m. as a student and uh, a bit drunk and watching a uh, a Open University program about I don't know, Regency architecture and uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know there's been there's been I think you're saying 1.5 million people have graduated uh, from from Open University. Um, since 1969, some 60 million people have, or downloads of uh, Open University content from iTunes U have taken place in just the past few years. And the, the uh, you know this this British contribution, I think, to opening up ex- access to education, irrespective of background, irrespective of location, is is a wonderful thing. So Martin, who's the head of Open University, is going to just speak for a few minutes in response to. Uh, to sound. So, uh, Martin, over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Good evening, everybody. 
I'm a most unusual Vice-Chancellor, born in Melbourne, Australia, met my wife in Cote d'Ivoire, Africa, got married in Brussels, 16 years in the United States with three American daughters, and now I live in Milton Keynes. Um, you know, a 12-year-old recently, well, not so recently, a few years ago, described going to school to me this way. They said, you know what, Martin, you have to sit down, put all your trust and confidence. He said, it's just like being on an aeroplane. You sit down, you put all your trust and confidence in somebody at the front that you don't really know, and you have to turn off all your electronic devices. <laughs> and I thought that was just a really interesting way for that, that young person to bring to life the way they viewed the relevance of their school education to them in the world that they, they lead. You know, I joined uh, the Open University from Microsoft, which is where we have sort of a common supporter in some ways. And my job was to figure out what really is the gift of technology to education, not how could we sell more software, but what was the gift. And after millions of, uh, of dollars of research and uh, netting it all out, you know what we arrived at? We arrived at access. It's exactly this that the real gift of technology is to be able to give the gift to the world of everybody, no matter what their backgrounds, access to a high-quality education experience. And let's see how well I listen to your lecture. I am so proud of the effort that you have put into this. Can we give him another round of applause? What a, what a brilliant job. You know, the OU has always believed in using the technology of the day to open ourselves up to create access. And in the very beginning, of course, that was that breathtaking technology. Yes, the colour television. Where, as you heard, we haven't trained more inebriated physicists than any other university on the planet. <laughs> but to our core, we believe that the essence of great education shouldn't be defined by holding the captive content. Quite honestly, quite the opposite. The more you open it up, the more you inspire, create aspiration, engage people, the more you create the very opportunities for them to go on and embark upon credit-bearing, credentialed education. And I think that's what we've seen this evening in many ways, hands down. And it's why, actually, you know, when, when we started to see in 2012 in higher education, it being the year of the MOOC, of these massive open online courses, where 18 of the top 20 ranked North American university began opening themselves up and giving their courses away for free around the world uh, for something as important and for something that we have spent 600 years cultivating as a world leader in higher education to our peril, would we, would we be left behind? And so inspired by people like Sal and others, we started late last year FutureLearn, which will have somewhere between 20 and 30 of our top-ranked institutions, along with and powered by the Open University, opening our courses up to the world to sort of follow in the footsteps of the Khan Academy to let people engage and, and participate and really understand the best of what our higher education has to offer. So very quickly, because we want to get to the Q&A, my response. So the, the, the key points that I take away from the, this wonderful lecture that we've had shared with us this evening are as follows. First of all, just darn how courageous you have to be to tackle the tyranny of conventional wisdom. You know, is there any reason why systems and processes aren't changed? If everybody in the world had the courage to do what this man has done, to take something that clearly works and put his family and himself and his friends on the line to go make it happen and evangelise it and prove that it can work, imagine what we could do to tackle some of the world's problems today. So that's lesson number one. Then about what is created through Khan Academy. Number one, do you notice how intensely personal it is? Did you notice how it's all focused on the individual and it's about helping that individual when and how they need it for mastery, not to be graded, not to be judged, not to be pass-fail, but to help everybody be successful. Did you notice that the platform itself does as much to restore belief 
and aspiration as it does teach. Why were we so affected by those videos? Because we're allowing people to believe that they can achieve. And isn't that what we want from all of the members of our society, to believe that they can achieve and to realise their, their aspirations? It was about really blended, making the best of what you've got. I get terribly distraught when the world tries to compare distance and online with physical. It's about celebrating a movement from brick and mortar to click and mortar. It's about saying, let's just use the best of what we've got to really create the best teaching outcomes we have. You did notice, though, that structures ma structure matters. Did you see those knowledge maps? It's not about just laissez-faire, throw it all out there and somehow people will make sense of it. Education requires structure and it requires great teaching. And we see that in the lecture here this evening. It, it's also, though, I think one of the key takeaways for me is, did you notice how difficult it is to improve a process? educational processes when the process itself is broken. We spend all of our time in education incrementally trying to improve it, when actually what we should be saying, quite frankly, is, is our education system as we currently present it as a process today even fit for purpose in the world that we now live in? And I think the real change is going to happen when we have the courage to challenge the process itself, rather than just trying to incrementally improve from within. Um, I take away tonight that change happens best in education from the bottom up that actually trying to create systemic change, looking to our government minders, ministers and secretaries of state to do it across the system for us all in one hit is likely never to happen. That the real disruption, the real innovation, the real impact will be when we do it child by child, school by school, community by community, um, and we all do it from the bottom up because that's what I think Khan Academy has proved. And finally, just to leave you with, with one thought before we go to the Q&A. Fundamentally believe there's great teaching face-to-face there's lousy teaching face-to-face. -face. It's great teaching online. There's lousy teaching online. What's our goal? Great teaching. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you, Martin. I'm going to... Um Exercise my uh, my prerogative as, as chair, and just to ask you both a uh, a quick a quick question. My my question to uh, to Sal is is what is your um, vision of what the classroom should look like in say ten years time, um, and you know consequences as well for examination and accreditation. What, what's, how, should that, how should that look? Do I have about 45 minutes? <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> no one, we're, all, we're staying here all night. Yeah. And, and you, know, you say 10 years, and, and I mean, we're, we're, some of what I'm about to describe we're already seeing. Mm. Now, I don't know in 10 years whether it's going to be mainstream or not, but my, my guess and my hope is that it will be viewed as, 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 as the, the best practice. And, and so one overlying theme I have, you know, and this applies actually not just to education, it applies to anything, I mean, it's, it's following on, on, on the words you said, is whenever you, you have a resource, what is the absolute best use of that resource? And so we have these things called physical classrooms, physical teachers, and I'm the last, I, I think they're incredibly valuable. I have young children, I want them to go to a physical classroom. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the best use of that resource? And to me, it's not for someone to broadcast a lecture, do something that maybe can even be done better on video. It's not for them to write exams and grade exams. That can be done in other ways. It's for them to form a human bond with the students. And uh, I, I, I randomly was at, uh, sat next to Wendy Kopp at dinner. She's the founder of Teach for America, and I think now it's Teach for the World. 
uh, where they get are, are you all familiar with Teach for America? They get they get kind of uh, very um, talented young people coming out of colleges and rather than becoming bankers and whatever else, they say become a teacher in a in a hard neighborhood. And and they're very analytical as well about all the teachers that they're bringing in. And I said, well, what's the what what makes a great teacher? And she said, you know, it's surprising. What really moves the dial with student outcomes isn't the, the best lecturer. I mean, that might be okay. What moves it is the people who can really change the mindsets of the students, the ones that force the students to take ownership of their learning, that don't try to that say, look, it's, I'm here as a resource for you. You're the one that has to really make sure that your life turns out well. Mm-hmm. And, and it's completely in line with, with what I believe, too, which is, look, it's not about lecturing anymore. It's about sitting next to students. It's about leading them through projects. It's about forming human bonds. And as I point out, in some of these Los Altos classes, the old way, the teacher was spending 80% of their time lecturing. Uh, maybe another, you know, maybe they had 1% or 2% of their time was to actually sit down next to students. Now 80% of their time is sitting down next to students. And so you're literally using technology increasing by almost two orders of magnitude the amount of humanity in, in the classroom. So that's an overarching theme. Another is, uh, you know, a lot of what I talked about is that it should be um, catered, the, the student should be the focus. It should be around the student, self-paced, should be based on mastery. It should be based on retention. I mean, that's something that we're, we've already been working on, but we want to do a lot more, where the best badges are, have you retained this knowledge, and have you, can you do it in a context switching, where you don't know that every problem is the systems of equations, where you're doing it and you have to realize what, what tool you need to apply in this, in, in this concept. Um, and, and I also think, right now, we only measure, in our modern system, one of the important metrics, and that's kind of academic mastery or skills, you know, your test scores, your whatever. And, and that matters to some degree. Uh, but there's two other incredibly important things that we completely don't measure, and I imagine the school in 10 years should, mm-hmm. and, and, and hopefully we can, we can be a catalyst for that. One is uh, your portfolio of creative works. Uh, as you proceed, you should do creative things, whether it's writing a paper, composing a sonata, building a robot, do creative things, and, and we might be able to leverage peer assessment to give you feedback of that. And obviously you'll do critically analyze other people's work. You end not just with a bunch of grades, you end with a portfolio of things that you've actually made from scratch. As, as an employer, that's what I care to see more than a, than a transcript and a, and a, and a GPA. Right. The, the other dimension, and, and you can actually measure that. You can even look at how people feel about your stuff and things like that. The other dimension is how good of a, of a communicator and instructor you are as a, and, and a leader you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what, I write a lot about this in my book. You know, 13-year-olds are proto-adults. I mean, n- nature allows a 13-year-old to have children. I, I don't advocate it, but, <laughs> but, but you know, anyone who has had children, it's, it's, it's 10 times more responsibility than anything we've ever done in, in, in our lives. Mm. And, and nature allows that to happen to 13-year-olds, which tells you that they're actually capable of incredible responsibility. And my personal belief is a lot of the angst that you get from teenagers is because they're capable of leadership, they're capable of responsibility, but we treat them like children, and we make them only responsible for themselves. And so the, the, the dimension I would try to foster and even measure is you have responsibility for other peers. You're 16, you're going to be a TA for a bunch of 13-year-olds. There's going to be 360 peer review where you're going to get feedback on your communication skills, your empathy skills, and, and it's obviously going to reinforce some of the concepts as well. And so once you have kind of those three concepts, I think you're going to have a much more holistic uh, picture, picture of the student. Yeah. On, on, the, on the credentialing, um, I think it's, uh, you're going to decouple it from the learning experience. You're going to have internationally recognized co- credentials that are independent of, of how or where, where you learn things. Big change coming. Yeah, that's, that was my short answer. <laughs> and then my, my question for, for Martin, I think, is I, I was in China uh, recently and talking to 
internet companies over there, it's clear that there's a lot of American edu- university education content that's available in, in China. And Chinese students seem to be, high school students seem to be using it as sort of try before you buy. So you sort of experience a Harvard lecture and realise, wow, that's where I really want to go. Do you, do you, do you uh, sort of worry that British universities might be being left behind? How do you see sort of British universities moving? Clearly you're driving a lot of this. Um, but how, how do you see that global picture for yeah. the UK looking? Thank you. And I hope you're right about teenagers. If you give them responsibility, will step up because my 17-year-old is watching my 7- and 9-year-old. So I oh, very good. So I will, I'll judge you on how yes. well that goes when I, uh, when I get home this evening. You know, there's, when the web chooses to disrupt something, We've seen it in music with the Napster moment. We've seen it in publishing. We've seen it in television, in movies. But when it chooses to disrupt, it, we often have a tendency to focus on the disruption to the product and service, don't we? You know, what, what's happened to that? What's very interesting is when the web chooses to disrupt, it, it disrupts as much around customer acquisition as it does around product and service. And in fact, in many ways, that defines then the models that endure. And so what's going on in higher education right now whether we like it or not, is by our American colleagues opening their universities up to the world to allow students to actually engage in courses, in these massive open open online courses, and get a sense of the university, get a sense of the culture, the teaching, the ethos, the prerequisites. That actually is going to be incredibly formative for those that go on to become fee-paying students, this this fast-growing population of transnational students. So my belief is both within the UK and around the world, what we're going to see over the next few years is those universities that actually stake out their digital storefronts, Mm. allow students like the OU has since the early 70s to engage and actually enjoy the university in these free and formal open spaces that then have the opportunity to go on and make their choices, will absolutely make choices in the areas where they've had the ability to to, um, have that experience. My belief is those organisations of whatever type that offer great value for free and great value for fee and manage that boundary really well are the ones that ultimately succeed and do well. And I, so and we've talked about a lot of disruption in teaching and learning this evening, but I think what you're touching on is a lot of disruption in the core business models of higher education as well and the way students will discover and engage and enrol. And, and I do think we will over time, as disruptive as it is, we will start to see students piecing together their own university educations from different institutions around the world. And, and that is incredibly disruptive if you really play that out and start to think about what that might look like as individuals in higher education take responsibility for piecing together their, their own education. Quick story for you, because I know you want to move on. Frozen Planet, David Attenborough, co-production with the BBC. 44% of all viewing adults watched at least one episode of Frozen Planet. The call to action... Come to my open education repository, OpenLearn, in the OU. About 450,000 people did because we so inspired them on TV that they wanted to engage and keep studying. We then built an undergraduate fee-paying science course, entry-level module called Frozen Planet. We watched all the analytics flow through, fastest um, enrolled module in the history of the Open University, and we could watch people move from completely informal on the television all the way through that journey to um, a, a very significant number of them going on and enrolling as students. Welcome to the future of higher education. Well, there you go. So, um, <laughs> amazing story. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to um, take three questions at a time, Oops, if that's, if that's okay. And um, I, I ask, um, please keep your questions very short, because I know there's a lot of people that uh, will be keen to, to respond, and uh, I'm sure these guys will keep their answers uh, uh, similarly succinct. So, a uh, question here down the front. Yeah. Uh, question for, oh, thank you. A question for Sal. Um, does Khan Academy now teach music? And if not, could I talk to you for three minutes afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, right behind you. Yes, hi. Uh, you've mentioned uh, a lot about learning, uh, but how about uh, the social skills that uh, students get in the classroom? Uh, if you have students going at uh, very different pace, paces, how do you... Uh, and also students focusing on um, mainly interacting with the teacher as a resource, even though they can, as you mentioned in one example, uh, do exercises together, I mean, can, can be tutoring other students. How do you deal with, I mean, how can the students um, learn social skills in that new paradigm? Thank you. And a uh, question at the top there, gentleman in black. Thanks. Uh, well, quick question. What are your researches uh, and your thinking uh, so far make you think about what the optimum size of educational institution is compared to the 1,000 plus students at a secondary or um, high school and you know, anything up to 50,000 or more students at a university? Great. Well, thank you. So a question there about uh, music, a uh, question about social skills and uh, one about the optimum size of educational institutions. Yeah, so, so the music, we don't have any music yet. Uh, we're very open to it. We're actually very eager to it. And, and whether it's music or any other domain, uh, and we're completely serious about this, what we tell, encourage people is make four or five videos. They don't have to be perfect. Obviously, my first videos weren't, and even the existing videos aren't perfect. But if, if we feel like there's, I mean, one, you should do it on your own, no matter what. You're creating value in the world. Someone's going to get something out of it. Uh, but if we... If we see them and we say, well, you know, this is kind of in line with our philosophy and how this is, resonates with people, uh, we would love to talk. And, and we are carving out spaces on the site where uh, we can kind of friends of Khan Academy, where it's a place where other people could start doing these other domains. Uh, and there's another, there is a gentleman, David Reese, who's at the Royal College of Music, who's been doing some music stuff, too. Uh, not with us. Oh, 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 hey, David. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never seen you. I've exchanged emails. That's very nice. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but some great stuff, and, and uh, y'all should... Uh, <laughs> Do you want to come up here? And yeah. <laughs> but no, I think, I think music's really important. I mean, y'all saw some of the art history videos, and that's part of us. I mean, this was from two art historians who were doing this really cool stuff that resonated with us in terms of they were human, they connected, they were very natural, and so that we did a non-profit merger, which essentially we gave them a job. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we're very open, and so I, I, y'all should collaborate, and, and we'd love to see some, some stuff that you make. Um, social skills. So, I mean, the way I frame it is, even though traditional classrooms, you have humans getting into a room together, it's actually, it, it actually inhibits social skills. Uh, you're not allowed to talk to each other, and I think any of us who had an accurate memories of our middle school years uh, could tell you that you know, it was Lord of the Flies. I mean, it was not, it, it was not um, empathy, it was not communication, it was not leadership, it was, uh, you know, might is right and, um, and the weak will suffer. Um, and, and, that's, and, and, and that's not social skills. And, and so what's, what 
part of a lot of what I talk about is when human beings to get together, they teach each other, they do peer-to-peer. -peer. Some kids are going to go ahead. Some, and it's going to be in different classes. Different kids are going to spike. My personal belief, and we've seen this in a, in a ton of classrooms already, is it actually is much better for social skills. Uh, that student who, you know, he's not captain of the soccer team or the, or the, or the basketball team, but he's strong in algebra, uh, now he has a chance to be a leader as well. Uh, he can mentor people. He, can, he, he gets to tutor them. And he gets to build those social skills that before it was just about him. It was just about he got a perfect on his test or whatever. Uh, now it's about him investing in his peers. And we've seen that, that change of that kid who was maybe a little awkward before and who was a little marginalized in the classroom all of a sudden become central to the classroom. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and it's across the board. And especially if you do peer review and if you teach people to give peer review, it's, that's leadership in action. And, and so I, I personally believe, I mean, we don't know exact. It's going to be different in every classroom, but I think it's going to be uh, a, a better at, at building, so more human. Um, in terms of optimal size, I'm guessing this is maybe more for, I don't know for sure. I think the answer really should be um, more empirically driven. I mean, and this, this opens up a, a whole... I mean, universities are famous for being centers of research, but very few times is that research inward looking, uh, where, you know, I mean, it, it could be what's the optimal size of a classroom, what's the optimal size uh, of, what's the optimal length of a class, uh, uh, either in time, what's the optimal length, is it, should it be a semester, should it be a month, should it be on demand? Uh, uh, these things, I think, have to be, and, and not just on, on student outcomes in the short term, but also on long-term retention, you know, it should, should be studied. Yeah, just very. I mean, a, a, a lot of um, similarities. Just on the on the social skills. Um, the other thing that I'd say, though, is that uh, it, don't underestimate human beings' ability to self-organize as well. So what we're seeing in a lot of the MOOC space now is students are finding each other in these digital spaces and they are well and truly finding more intimate, personal, high-touch ways of coming together to build some of those social skills. I think it is fundamentally in the assessment as well. 50, over 50% 50 of our assignments and formative assignments at, at the end, or summative assignments, I should say, at the end of our courses are assignment-based rather than uh, classical test-based. Um, and a lot of those are project-oriented to, to bring it together. But I, I think the thing I just leave you with is, as, as nostalgic and wonderful as the whole bar experience is and going to a brick-and-mortar institution and having those social interactions, the world cannot build enough universities to satisfy the demand to get access to higher education. So shame on us if we don't embrace these ways of scaling high-quality education because we're worried about holding on to nostalgic views as well, which I know wasn't your question, but I think there is a real need for us to think that way. And then just finally on size of the institution, sorry, I think don't worry about the size of the institution. I don't think that's the question. The question is the quality of the teaching. So if, if I dig into why... The Open University topped the Student Satisfaction League tables last year out of all universities in the UK. It's got nothing to do with the fact that we're the biggest university, but everything with the fact that our students have a 15 to 1 ratio with their tutor. It comes down again to that great teaching. Think of it more around that peer interaction and the relationship between the teaching and the student than necessarily the size of the whole enterprise. And that doesn't have to be sage on the stage or, or a prof. That can be that peer-to-peer -peer stuff that Sal's been talking about as well, but that's what you want to stay focused on. Wonderful. Uh, question? Right. Question for Sal. Um, the microphone. Sal, when you, when you move out more from uh, science and maths to the humanities and the social sciences, is there an intellectual backbone to those uh, disciplines in the same way that there is to science? Is there a se sequential progressive sense of learning that you can assess in the same way? Right. Uh, gentlemen with... Uh, Glasses, yeah. 
So we've been hearing quite a lot about access, and you can understand the, the, the rhetoric of access is a very powerful rhetoric. I wonder to what degree you think that there's a, a danger of having access dominating the debate. When What strikes me as really powerful about the Khan Academy model isn't the, the, the access. In fact, that's almost an ancillary benefit. It's a, a side effect of what is really powerful, which is the fact that it's, it's the mastery and the focus on individual mastery of individual concepts before you start moving on. That's the real powerful power of what technology has provided in terms of uh, a benefit. Great, thank you. And uh, uh, gentlemen, there, sort of second row. Uh, thank you. Um, question for both Sal and Martin. Um, in one word, one word. Um, <laughs> um, uh, what is your greatest challenge uh, over the course of building Khan Academy and Axis? and uh, what's your solution in solving them? <laughs> one word solution okay. as well. The, your one the, word is allowed to be... Um, oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've got a word that I get... I, I think I can answer both of them with one word. Let's see. I guess I'll, I'll start. Um, the, the, on, on the question of the humanities, and the humanities, there's a couple of... I, I, layers there that I think is being asked. One is, you know, you all saw the knowledge map for mathematics. Mathematics, there is a dependency. Before you do uh, equations, you have to understand fractions and negative numbers and multiplication. Otherwise, you can't. Um, in something like history, you could learn about World War I before you know about the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War, although, you know, they happen, one happens after the other. Um, so I think you, you could map out things, but it would be much more, it would be a different type of thing. It would be more of a time-space type of thing that you could do. Um, but I think there's another layer to that question, which is, uh, you know, there's a lot of, or most of math is, is about right or wrong. There, there's a correct answer there. Uh, the, the humanities are, for the most part, subjective. And, and I think there's a couple of layers. One is, uh, there is a scaffold of kind of core skills, I think, also in the humanities. I mean, if you're talking about writing, it's grammar, it's vocabulary, whatever else. Um, if you're talking about history, I mean, there, there are just, uh, there's a scaffold of knowledge that does make you more fluent in being able to, dis to discuss history. And then for the subjective things, I actually think this is where, and we haven't explored this as much as we want to over the next several years, that's where I think this, uh, this form factor might be even more powerful. Um, we've talked already about, you know, if you write an essay, how do you auto-grade that? Well, you know, there's a, there's a New York Times article about some folks at MIT doing machine grading. I don't, I don't know how, well, but I think peer grading is, is a very powerful thing, and, right. and we've talked a little bit about that. And that anything subjective can be done that way, and we're already doing that a little bit with computer science. Uh, the, the other element of, of history is when you're conveying the information. Um, it's obviously subjective. Everyone has biases. And, and what we point out is, is that, you know, in a traditional textbook, someone writes it. It's usually edited by peers who are very similar to themselves from the same culture, from the same religion, often the same schools. Then it goes out. University students get it or high school students get it. Professor lectures. Oftentimes, the historian will have a bias. That's, that's how they made their career. Teacher, students take notes, and, and they, they bring it back to the professor during, during the exam. And, and what you see a very different thing online. Online, you know, I, I did a, and I talked about this earlier today as well, but I, mean, I, I did a, a video on the, the CIA intervention in Chile. And, uh, and I used primary documents from the CIA, but I also talked about you know, some people think this happened, some people think that. I tried my best, but I said, look, everyone's got a bias. Call me on things. And so, a lot of students said, hey, you know, this, this, was, uh, this was really informative. I didn't know about this. Some American students said, oh, you're not being fair to the Americans. It was during the Cold War. 
Uh, and then I got a Chilean, several Chileans who called me an imperialist pig, uh, who told me that I had whitewashed history, uh, that their uncle had died in that intervention, and that this is what actually happened. And, and my first reaction when I saw that was, you know, this didn't happen on my algebra videos. And, and, uh, and, and, and it also didn't happen in the history classes that I was a part of. You know, there wasn't a Chilean kid coming in and saying, you're an imperialist pig, you're wrong, you're a liar. And, but the real question is, why didn't that happen? That really should have happened. And so the powerful thing about this form factor is it's out in the open. There's nowhere to hide. It's not in a, behind a closed door. Mm. And you're going to get voices from around the world. And not only are they going to say these things, but they're going to cite documents. They're going to find other points of view for you. So I actually think it's a much, a much healthier way to address subjective yeah. sub- subjects. Right. The, the, the last one, real fast, uh, one word that I think is the uh, focus has is, is been, our, I think, because our, so the, the space is so big, uh, that, that's the hardest thing for us to, to make sure we do right. And what was your solution to that? Focus. <laughs> uh, my one word uh, is convention is the biggest challenge. Uh, you know, how do, how do you actually take something very conventional um, and, and actually move it, not just for your own institution, but for, but for a sector? Uh, and the, the, um, I, I just think that my solution to that has been to not seek perfection, but grab a few enlightened willing and get going. Mm, very good. All right, three more enlightened willing. Um, uh, question down here from the front. Hi, so well, thank you very much for inspiring me to make videos oh, okay. two years ago. I had my first Mongolian student two weeks ago. So oh, very exciting. That's awesome. Um, the thing I loved most about your vision was that it was uh, a non-profit vision, so you were looking to make a free, world-class education available for everyone. And I suppose in the last couple of years, we've seen lots of new players arrive who are for-profit companies. And I suppose my question to you is, um, do you see you could, uh, the, the delivery of a world-class education for anyone anywhere could ever be done by anything other than a non-profit mm. organisation? Fantastic. Yeah, a couple from the back. Uh, lady, maybe just there. Hi. Um, I'd just like to say I agree with the previous questioner that the most important thing um, that you developed independently was the idea of progress, incremental progress for each child. And I think that a lot of the best teachers in this country, and even the more mediocre teachers in this country, acknowledge that and are driven by that in their teaching, uh, spend a lot more time on interventions for the children who are trying to pick up a concept more slowly, having more trouble, encouraging them with you know, progression-based praise. Um, but that they are being crippled by the national curriculum saying, in year one you do this, in year two you do this, in year three you are expected to be able to do that. Um, how would you go about, not combating necessarily, but working around um, or working with government strictures on how education should be based? Right. Thank you. And uh, gentlemen here... Hi, um, my question's to both of you to some extent. Um, as um, Karen particularly um, identified, um, people grow at different rates, people mature at different rates. And um, one thing that really came out to me is that in this system of education, it's a lot to do with self-motivation. It's the people who are very much motivated by themselves to go out and, and learn these things. And um, I know coming from a very formal um, type of education, one thing that really benefited me was actually being pushed um, because I wasn't very self-motivated. How would you sort of seek to address that? Fantastic. Thank you. 
Yeah, and I'll actually take the second one first because I, I realized I didn't answer the other gentleman's yeah. question, which was which was essentially that the, along the same lines or, or they, they lead to each other. Uh, I, I completely agree. I mean, access is an important point, but it, it, you know, I, I, I you kind of I, I draw the analogy. I'm very kind of uh, inspired by some of what's happening with you know organizations like Tesla, where for a long time people are talking about electric cars, electric cars, and they're they're putting out inferior electric cars hoping that just the feel-good nature of it will make someone pay money for something that doesn't go as fast or isn't as safe. Right. And it was really, and, I, and, I, and I, I strongly believe, you know, Tesla is actually putting out the best car on the market that happens to be an electric car. Yeah, and, and, and I think uh, that's, how, that's the lens that we try to do at Khan Academy. We don't try to uh, rest on, oh, we're not for profit, we're giving it away for free, you should like us because of that. We generally say we want to be the best thing out there, and it just happens, happens to be free. And, and, and so I hope we can... We can uh, continue to be at, at that standard. Mm. Um, in terms of the, uh, and, I'll, and I'll connect it to your question about the national curriculum, um, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, what I've kind of told folks who are in a position to, to kind of talk about these things is uh, we should move to a competency-based model uh, as opposed to a, um, essentially a seat time-based model. It's essentially global. I mean, you sit in a chair and you get promoted year after year. The university system is, I don't know if it's this way in the, the UK, but in the US, it's, you literally have credit hours. That literally, how many hours uh, did you sit per week for, for this class? And if you move to a competency-based system, it, it completely uh, opens up how you prepare for those competencies. So it would, it would give the teachers the independence to flex their creativity, which keeps getting, I mean, this is happening in the US, and I think this is happening globally. Every time there's a crisis or there was a perceived crisis in education, the reaction is to put more control on it. And that might de-risk some of the worst situations out there, but it also completely numbs some of the best experiences out there. And you're, you have kind of a, a, a race to mediocrity. And so if you go to competency, um, you still have very high standards, uh, but you're giving the teacher the independence to, or, and, and, and the student the independence to decide what, what works best for them. Um, in terms of profit, uh, not-for-profit, um, I like that question. It allows me to get a little self-righteous. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was tempting. Well, there, there were some uh, folks, uh, you know, I live in Silicon Valley, and, and there was VCs who reached out in, you know, 2008, 2009 about making it a for-profit. And there, was a, uh, there were several layers of there that, that made me almost on a gut level wanted to be a not-for-profit. Uh, one was I started this out as a hobby. I never, you know, I remember in like 2005, 2006 when I used to show this to friends, they're, well, how are you going to make money off of this? I'm like, well, no, I don't want to. I have a job. I'm just having, yeah, but where's the business model? There's, you know, where, where's your competitive advantage? I was like, no, I don't, I don't want a competitive advantage. I, I actually I want more people to do this. And, and, uh, and, and I just found it incredibly rewarding to get these letters or even for my own family to, to, to be able to impact them. And so when it, when it was a possibility to become a more formal organization, um, I almost didn't want anyone to think that I had any other motivation than what my true motivation was, which was uh, genuinely to, to do this. And, you know, my mindset, even when I quit my job and w the discussion with my wife is, look, if I can get a, a, a professor's salary to do this the rest of my life, I'm going to be the happiest person on, on the planet. Um, so that was one layer. The other layer, you know, I, I spent my old career analyzing companies and talking to management teams and thinking about capital structure and thinking about motivations. And I had seen, personally, so many organizations that uh, you know, the founders were well-intentioned. And if, if they were the only people in charge, it probably would have been able to stay true to what their initial mission was. Uh, but for-profits, by law, have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder value. They can get sued otherwise. 
And oftentimes that does mean making a good product, but sometimes you have to have a much more short-term lens, especially if you're a successful for-profit and you go public. Uh, oftentimes you could get acquired, and who knows what, what happens with the acquiring company? Who knows what they do to the content? And for me, part of, I mean, it was almost uh, selfishly, I wanted this content to be out there. I want, my, I want all of our great-great-grandkids to, to maybe, you know, that's, that's kind of a crazy idea, but, but maybe use this content. And, and so for me, you know, I imagine, and I think it's a good framework for any decision in life, is to imagine yourself when you're 80, 90 years old and you're at the end of your life and you're just looking back on it, uh, you imagine that the decision either way is a huge success. Um, if it's a for-profit, it IPOs, uh, you know, I can buy a private plane, buy new clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's great. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to sound uh, disparaging of that. I mean, for-profits have done some great things. But the other model is if it's a home run as a, as a not-for-profit, and, and it was delusional for one guy in a room in 2007 to think this, but... Maybe it can be the next Stanford. Maybe it can be the next Oxford. Maybe in 500 years, uh, this will be an institution uh, that people that, that, that will continue to be focused on, on its mission. And, and that was the kind of the delusion of, of Khan Academy. Uh, the, the last question on self-motivation. Um, it's amazing. I, I get that question a lot. And, and I myself be- used to believe that it was a small fraction of students who are truly self-motivated. And you know, based on what you see in a classroom, it's anywhere between 5 and 20% of the students. But that other 80% who many people throw off as not motivated, you, they go home, they're going to play soccer for the next six hours. They're going to not give up on that video game until they beat the level. They are innately motivated people. The reason why they appear not motivated is because they've been, they're, they're protecting their ego. They, they can't connect with what's going on. You know, there's always this example of a, you know, a student, usually a boy in the back of a math class, who raises their hand and says, when am I going to have to use this? And then the teacher kind of hems and haws and says, oh, well, if you're going to become an engineer, oh, no, I'm not going to become an engineer. Well, if you go into finance, no, I'm not going to go into finance. Oh, if you go to, and, and, and there's this confrontational argument. And, and you know, what I say is, it's actually that conversation is, is, is skewed. To some degree, the student knows that math might be the most practical of all the subjects they're learning, but that same student never asked that in philosophy class. They never asked that in art class while they're finger painting. You never have a five foot nine Indian kid at PE saying, when am I going to have to take an orange ball and put it through a 10 foot hoop. I, I have, I have no, I, I'm, and, and the reason is because they're, 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 they're inspired. They, they're, they're recognizing this is just fun. It's, it's appealing to their, their humanity. And I think the same thing is easily true in math. If you don't talk down to people, if you allow them to remediate in a safe way, uh, they'll realize it's, it is a form of philosophy. It is a purist uh, to some degree. I mean, I don't want to get on that. On that but, but, uh, it, it, uh, and, but when you do that, and we get letters to this effect, actually tens of letters every week, that I used to hate math, now I think it's the most beautiful thing. And, and if we can do that, you'll see that, that 5% motivated kids become 90%. Yeah. Um, so forgive me, sir, for glossing over your access question too, but I didn't mean to. I was shifting cards here. Um, by the way, I just had this flash of your grandkids sitting there looking at it going, can you believe these guys used to watch videos? <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't think access is rhetoric, right? I, but it is. Our combined remarks, though, is it's not just access for the sake of access. It's access to meaningful experiences. And I think what the technology does is it allows us to engage with people and create a discourse and personalization and dialogue that hallelujah is really meaningful. So don't, but don't give up on the access piece. When I was in Rwanda and the Minister for Education said the number two cost in his PL was textbooks. Uh, it was very profound to me, right, out of all of the costs. So don't, don't underestimate the power of access. When it comes to self-motivation, so to, to your question here as well, I do think there's value in the push, right? 
But one thing that I've learned in education is there's incredible value from the pool as well. The number one Twitter question of a new OU student that you see show up is, how many other people are studying this course too? And what they're looking for is they're looking for people just like them that they can commune with, where they have that support mechanism between them to be able to march on and move forward. And so, and so don't underestimate that as well. I, I think that is, that is incredibly important. Wonderful. Well, look, we're, we're 10 minutes over time, and we need to give, uh, give, give Sal time to uh, sign all the books that uh, perhaps you're, you're going to buy. There are um, books by Sal Khan for sale uh, on, the, on the ground floor, so feel free to go and purchase those and, and bring those here. I'm, I'm, uh, I know many, many of you are, are keen to ask questions, which I think is a sign of just how inspiring and uh, motivating this, uh, this, this evening has been. I, I want to close on behalf of all of us by thanking our two speakers for so generously taking a chunk of their time to, to be with us tonight. Um, Martin, you know, what, what you're doing with Open University, continuing that strong tradition, British tradition of, of distance learning and opening access is truly wonderful and um, I can't wait to see where that, that goes next. And Sal, I think it's, it's no exaggeration to say that um, a revolution is coming in education and um, people everywhere within a, a short period of time, if it's not there already, really will be able to access the best quality education for free anywhere, anytime. And I think it's no exaggeration to say that that revolution has been sparked, kick-started by, by one person, and that's Sal Khan. So can everyone please join me in giving a huge round of applause to Martin. <laughs>